Our client of the month has been there 28 years. She's in her 80s now. She's had a frozen shoulder. She had a rotator cuff surgery. And through all of that, we were able to keep her fit. That's because it's personal training. We were staying engaged with her the whole time. So it keeps us out of that one size fits all, and it really fits our customer avatar. Welcome to the Alloy Personal Training Business Podcast, where we'll share our insights on how to make more money, how to help more people, and how to be a better leader for your business and your community. We've been in this game since 1992, and we'll share our successes and failures along the way. I hope you enjoy and subscribe. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the FBU Podcast. Uh, Most of the time, you're just listening to me yak about all the different things uh, about how to grow a business. But this year, I decided to do something different. I tried to find 12 people that I really wanted to talk to. So as I was saying to Rick before, this is completely selfish. I really don't care if you get anything out of it. This is for me to make sure that I get some value from my friends that I like to talk to. Um, but no, I, I've been searching for some really awesome, successful people in in and out of the fitness industry uh, to have some good, really great conversations with. And when I was creating my list of 12 people for this year, um, the, the first person on my list was Rick and, you know, he obviously, uh, accepted, which I was very grateful for. So he's, he's always there. He's always there for me. And, um, I am super excited for this conversation. We've had him come speak at our masterminds. He's been on this podcast before. Um, so really, really excited for this conversation with Rick. Rick, how are you doing today? No, I'm doing well. Thanks for the lead up. I mean, geez, no pressure, right? But uh, listen, I'm I'm honored to be here. As you know, we've been friends forever. Same speaking circuit. Love what you're doing in, for and in the fitness industry. So yeah, man, I'm honored to be here. I appreciate that. You said the same thing when I introduced you at the mastermind because I I gave you a little bit of a bigger intro on the mat. I feel like that <laughs> it was a little weak on the intro today, but uh, at the mastermind, I really went. I went deep, and the first thing you said to me was, "Oh, no pressure, no pressure." <laughs> yeah, it's always uh, yeah, it's always interesting. It's kind of like, wow, you know, how do you how do you live up to that intro? But we'll do our best. How about that? Well, you did an awesome job. I I remember uh, it, it's funny because I've seen you speak many times, and I remember the first time I saw you speak was one of the Thomas Plummer events, and he was speaking all day, and then you came in, and this was I had never. I think I had heard of you at the time, but I had never heard you speak. And I think that the the thing that drew me to you was your calmness and presence on stage. And I was just like, this guy's got his shit together. And I really, I was like, I got to meet this guy in person. And and the cool thing was after that, I, I think I emailed you right after. So I'm going back to the backstory of myself and Rick. And um I emailed you right after, you know, said you did a great job or something like I, like I always do. And, um, and then what I did was next, I booked a day with you. So this is like, I mean, a day with Rick Mayo today is it's, it's, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. Um, but I think I booked a day with you. Uh, I don't want to embarrass you and tell you how much I paid for that day. Um, uh, but I brought, I remember I brought two staff members with me. Uh, at the time, and we we went down to your gym in Atlanta and spent the entire day. And you were amazing. And we just sat in your office, and, and I just asked questions all day. And we went out and saw the action. And that was a, a, a game changing day for me and my career as a gym owner. And just to watch what you were doing, and um, it was it was amazing. And I remember it was I, honestly I can think about. There's a couple, you know 
monumental moments in my education life as a gym owner. And that was one of them for sure. So I just want to thank you for that and really um, also tell you that a, a full day with, with, with somebody of Rick's caliber is going to take you a long way. Um, so that was kind of like how originally we met, right? We originally, you know, created a relationship um, from there. And obviously now we're speaking on uh, the perform better tour. So I have uh, a million pounds of respect for you and uh, so happy you're here. Um, I want to kind of give the audience, I know most people know you, but I do want to give the quick backstory of you, uh, when you started and what brought you to kind of where you are today. So give us a real quick one because I know most people know you. Yeah, sure. So I've been in the business since 1992. I was, I opened my original facility when I was a junior in college. I'm actually sitting in the same building right now as, as the, as we opened in 92, we just expanded. But, um, you know, we did personal training then and we still do personal training. And so at that point, I think we serviced it as a one-on-one -on -one model. And somewhere around year 2000, we figured out that it might be more prudent to train more than one person at one time because it could bring cost down to the consumer, make it a little bit more fun, make the margins better for the business. And it was, it was a very interesting concept at the time. So it sort of put us on the radar for a lot of consulting and speaking, mostly speaking. And then that led to consulting. And we started to get the same common questions, you know, time after time. So we decided to answer those questions with a, you know, just to build a platform. It was the first, you know, version, iteration of LMSs back then. So learning management system. And we built that, we fractionalized it because we were working with every kind of consumer or, or business owner, I should say, from CrossFit to giant tennis centers. And so we needed, it was different application of consulting for those different groups. And most of them were just to learn how to either run a more efficient business or if they were a general service gym or like that tennis center, as an example, they or hospital center, they would just want to learn how to sell and service coaching at different levels. And so we would deploy different parts of the platform for that. That led to um, some long-term agreements with some of the largest franchises, not just fitness, but in the world overall. So I sat on advisory board for some giant franchises. Um, Got a really nice peek under the covers of how that worked. And then 2019, we decided, and we had scaled that business events to 2,500 door fronts from Dubai, India, Tasmania, you name it, right? All over the world. Great business. And then in 2019, we decided to pivot to full franchising. Um, and of course, the world caught on fire in 2020, which kind of slowed us down for a few years. But now we're back on it. And uh, yeah, it's going well. We're at like 220 licenses awarded. Um, we're growing by like 20 a month, which in franchising space is insanely fast. Um, just trying to keep up with it operationally, keep it on the rails, support our franchisees. But, but yeah, that's it in a nutshell. So literally personal trainer opens a gym, works 12 hours a day, figures out how to scale that business, doesn't work in the business, works on the business, creates a side business because of that business, which leads to all those other businesses. And in between there, there was you know buying the NFBA, NFBA which was Tom's company, Tom Plummer's company. Um, running our own mastermind group, which is similar to what you do now um, mm -hmm. for a while. So all kinds of different things within the fitness space to then lead to the what we think is the best opportunity vehicle, which is a franchise. Yeah, a lot of great gym owners came out of that group with you and you and Frank, for sure. Yeah, I mean, all kinds of uh, all kinds of other masterminds splintered out of that. So it's like, oh, okay, cool. But I love it. That's what it's about. You know, it's about leveling up as, as the rising tide raises all ships. You know, that's the idea. And I truly believe that. Awesome. Uh, I want to go back to 2000 
And uh, I I don't know if you know this, but I don't think you know. Um, so I finished my book. I try to write a book every year. And so the book I wrote this year was The Ultimate Guide to Small Group Personal Training. Perfect. And the uh, I, there's not another book out there on it. And I was like almost surprised. There actually is one on um, – it was like a textbooky, almost like – I think it was like an ace. I think if someone from ace wrote it. Right? So right. it's real textbooky. Um, so this book is like from my point of view. I've done small group um, since 2008. And, you know, it's been the model that we've had the entire time. And you are like an OG of, of that model. And just it, surprisingly, I know a lot of people have moved towards it, but there's surprisingly still a large number of people that are hesitant or they tried it and they failed. Um, you obviously have, you know, made this the model of your franchise that you've gone all in with. Can you just talk about this model? you know, this small group model. And I know this might be like a little bit of a, almost like a remedial question for you. Um, but just talk about the model in, in general and, um, you know, why it's the one that you chose to take this all the way through. Yeah. So uh, essentially the definition of personal training in a small group for us is one coach with up to six clients. So no more than six. Of course, that's a question we get a lot. So we can go ahead and answer that if you'd like, which is why six. It's like, well, at four, the value proposition isn't good enough. So you have to charge the threshold that you have to charge at a limit of four is really too high to scale. So, you know, you go to six and now you can have a, an amazing value proposition. And the caveat is you must also keep the brand promise of personal training. And when we went above six to go to eight or 10, there are people that do that, but in our experience, that would turn the service offering into that dirty C word that we never like to use around alloy, which is class, right? <laughs> so we don't want to do classes. And no matter how we tried to skin it or how specific we made it, or I mean, geez, events like colored bands for your level and karate belt. I mean, like you all kinds of different kind of ideas on how to take a larger group concept and make it personal training. And you just couldn't do it. It was just a head count, right? It was just the logistics of too many heads. And the fact that you couldn't provide the service and feel good about really claiming that it's truly personal training. So, you know, we've, we've stumbled onto that model organically. It would be say you're working out with me, I'm your personal trainer. And you say, Hey, I have a friend that I played college football with that I want to bring in. Can we work out together? That seems like that would be fun. And I'd be like, okay, sure. We would charge you a little less. The overall revenue for the hour for the gym would be higher. That means the coach could make a little more. I was helping twice the number of people in that hour, and I was realizing more revenue for the time because I'm really selling time slots, essentially, right? And there's a finite amount of those in this model. So I'm like, hmm. And then maybe you were like, hey, we have a third guy that we golf with. Can we bring him in? And I'm like, sure. Now you're all paying a little bit less, right? I'm making a little bit more. Same same formula over and over again until we reach that threshold of six where we were like, all right, anything more than this? And we're essentially you know, doing a class. So that's how we stumbled onto it. It was organic. And in 2000-ish, can't remember the exact date, we were doing about 3,000 one-on-one sessions a month, which is a lot. I mean, we had a killer business in one-on-one training. But as you know, the margins are tight. I don't like the labor model around it. It's like one coach for every person. It's just cumbersome and, and unnecessary. And you also, you don't get to build the same type of community that you do in the small group. So we ripped the bandaid off and just moved everybody from one-on-one -on -one training to 
what we called personal training in a small group. And it was not easy. I mean, it was almost like going from licensing to franchising. It's like the opportunity cost of leaving a thriving business that was not broken to pursue something that's better is a terrifying proposition. But at some times when you just know you have to do it. And if you, it, it, for those that are listening to this, that are hesitant to make that move because you think your clients won't like it because you've asked them and you get negative feedback, I would just go back to something that we hear a lot, Vince, which is Henry Ford saying, Hey, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, right? It's like in some way, shape or form, you have to take feedback from customers, but keep in mind, they don't know what they don't know, meaning they don't know that there's a thing out there that could be better. And you have to, with data and enough risk tolerance, just, just make a move and know that it's going to work out. Right. And so that's how we got to the model. And then it took a long time and nuanced way to figure out the programming and the customer experience around it. And like, what elements could we pull from class-based concepts that we like that would build community, but how could we keep the integrity of like injury working around injuries, regressions, progressions, all the like programming stuff that made it personal training. So it took a minute and it is very nuanced and we work really hard to make it look really simple. But I think, you know, cause a lot of people ask in franchising, well, how come no one's doing what you're doing in franchising? I'm like, I don't know. But I mean, I think it's because it's more nuanced than it looks outside looking in. It's like, Oh, you just put six people together. It's like, yeah, but right. You know, you've been running it since 2008 it takes a minute to get really good at it. And so it took us a while to really dial it in. And once we did, it was just, it was a piece of cake. So that's how we got to small group. I like it because it has all the elements of the community of a class-based concept and all the benefits to the right customer avatar of a personal training concept. I, I want to dig a little deeper into one specific thing you said. And the the interesting thing to me is the difference between like six and eight. And I it, it's funny when we brought this model to ours, we tested it like over and over again. We brought guys in, we brought clients in and we tested it. And I remember uh, there's a bill, I think it's a Bill O'Reilly quote. Have you ever seen that Bill O'Reilly quote where he goes, he goes, fuck it, we'll do it live. Did you, have you ever seen that? <laughs> right. So, so it's funny because I remember my guys, like they hadn't, I didn't feel like they had done enough work um, when we were testing it between six and eight. And I was like, I was saying, I was like, you got to run it live. You got to do it live. And I'm yelling. You remember Big Tom? Like, I'm yelling at Big Tom. And I'm, yep. I'm like, I'm like furious, like you going off on him. And uh, he's, he looks at me and starts like laughing. And I'm like, what the hell are you laughing at? And he pulls up the clip of Bill O'Reilly of like doing it live. <laughs> but the point, point was we tested it too. Like we tested between six and eight to see how far we could push the envelope. And we saw similar things as well you know, with the challenges. And even we looked at it from like a touch point, how much time you could spend on each client. There's a big difference between six versus eight. I do feel there are a lot of people pushing the envelope on this. I think like, well, well we have six. Well, let's just put seven or let's just put eight. And like pretty soon it's going to be 13. Like talk to me about like when you guys decided on six, what were the things you saw at like eight, you know, that were like, no, we're going down to six and we're holding here. Um, what is what the, what you guys saw? From that perspective yeah well i think it's it's really obvious it's what you said i mean listen to keep it personal training you have to be able to work around everyone's injuries and you know one of the common questions we get is around programming is how do you you know does everyone need to be at the same level and every in that hour i'm like no you couldn't scale that right can you imagine trying to book someone and it's like you know they're on the app trying to sign up for a 6 a.m session and ask them what level they are and they have to know and then it's the other people in there like that's a terrible way to do it so to be able to train someone who's 70 years old with a double knee replacement 
with someone who's 40 years old, who's really fit, right? Who came out of a CrossFit background, who's healthy. Um, it, it takes a, a certain level of coaching and we control all the programming globally at corporate, like for the franchise, we write the programs you know, we write the principled programs. We have a communication tool that just tells the coach how to connect the person to the program at their level and around their injuries. Um, but if we got above six, we just simply just based on the number of heads in the, in the group could not do that any longer. And it would feel like a class. And then what, then what you start doing to mitigate some of the coaching anxiety about trying to provide personal training level service to eight people, as opposed to six is you start doing things um, inadvertently that make it even feel like a class. Like you start running the workout on the clock, right? It's like, Oh, timed stations. Well, that's class-based, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's orange theory. That's all the other classes. It's like, okay, so, but, but it, it makes it easier to herd cats. So there's only eight. I can still coach them well, but I'm going to run this thing based on a clock. I'm like, okay, that alone is a, is a direct connection to what a class would look like versus personal training session. You know, you don't run your personal training sessions, the entire thing on a clock, right? So we tried to take everything from one-on-one training that we, that knew that we knew made it a great customer experience and speak to personal training and bring it into this group setting. And we just, through your point, you know, we tested four. Four was easier, of course, but it had to be sure. too expensive because there's a business model around this, right? Yep. Six was a good value proposition to the right customer avatar, and we could still keep that promise. And anything above it, as good as we are at doing it, as long as we've been doing it, just regardless of that, it just felt like a class. And so yep. I don't know, it was just trial and error, really. There was no magic to the six number other than four was too expensive and eight was just too many and made it feel like a class. Yeah. No. And I, and I also like the, the fact that you go with the term small group um, over semi-private. And I don't know why, but I just have never, I thought it never made sense to me. I, I, I look at like semi is just like half of, right? And it's just right. like you're starting your service with something that's less than. And it's just like, it never made any sense to me, the whole semi-private thing. Um, so I was well, always you know, happy. I talk about it in the we, book too. Yeah, no, it's great. You know, it's funny you say that about the book. I had a ghostwriter reach out to me like 15 years ago and it was like, it's going to be, we were going to write a book called Six Figure Small Group, which at the time was a big deal. Oh, wow. If you could make you six have. figure profits, you know? Um, I just didn't do it. I was like, nobody's going to read that, you know? And so like now I'm wished I had done it because it would have been a cool thing. And it was 15 years ago. It would have been awesome. You know, what a cool time. That would something really that, like nobody wow. would have been doing it. So I didn't do it though, but um, I'm glad that you did. But yeah, to your point, look, man, uh, more than, more than that six number, um, it, it just gets, it just gets weird. It does. I don't know how else to say it. We tried it. You know, it would certainly be great if we could charge what we charge for six and have 10 people in there but you just can't, right? Then you start using mechanisms that look and smell and feel like a class. And class has a service and pricing anchor that goes with it that you cannot break. You can't charge four to $500 a month for class. You just can't. So it has to be personal training. And so all of our juice goes into making sure that yes, there's a group of six people together. So when we use the name small group, I agree with you a long time ago, we had a director that worked here for 25 years named Joe. He was awesome. And Joe was like, I, I hate the word semi-private. And he always used it as like a joke. It's like, I don't know. It sounds like you're like half naked or something. Like, yeah. That's, you're kind of <laughs> private, like you're not wearing pants. I'm like, what? You know, but that was his take and we would laugh about it. But he hated the term. So we just went to, and we even changed events from small group personal training because small group is a term that's often used for classes, right? 
So, I mean, you can say, you can go to say Lifetime and they do small group training, you know, say personal training and you go in there and there's 45 people, you know? So we always say uh, personal training in a small group, which I know it's nuanced, but I mean, you know, when you, when you talk about the nomenclature around a brand and what you do, every little detail in, in mass, right. The collective detail of all of that makes a big difference. And so it's like, I know it's nuanced. I know it's silly, but you know, again, it's like, it's good for your team to understand what you're trying to do. It's good to communicate to clients. I mean, we still like, we'll still have our customer success stories now in Alloy. They'd be like, oh, I love the small classes. I'm always like, oh, but <laughs> that's fine. But we're not going to call it that, right? We're not going to speak to our customers in that manner. So some of them will catch on. Some just call it a class and that's fine. It's, I wish they wouldn't, but like, whatever. As long as they're paying and they love it, they can call it whatever they want. Right. <laughs> awesome. Well said. No, I, I like that personal training in small groups. That's good. I might have put an addendum in the book for that one. Um, Rick, you always talk about your retention rate. And I think that we're in a weird time with retention. And I think that, um, you know, our good friend, Mike Waldron, who, you know, helps you out, helps me out. He collabs data on retention rates and it's kicked up in the last couple yep. of years. Um, I do know that you guys do a phenomenal job here. And what are, what are the things of it? I have a gym owner listening to this. What are the biggest factors that make people stay at a gym month after month? I think first and foremost, it's the simplest thing is it's the business model. So in an alloy, you're in a 1,500 to 2,000 square foot footprint, right? You're servicing mm -hmm. 130 to 150 clients. That's a healthy model. If you're, you know, 150 would be the max. And, and you know, you've used this term, and we've certainly used the science behind Dunbar's number, which is, you know, the number of people, uh, Robin Dunbar, a British mm -hmm. scientist, is basically the number of people you can cognitively maintain a close relationship with outside of very close friends and family. And this, these are studies on civilizations that go back to, I don't know, as far back as, as he could study. And he landed on this number 150. So it's also often referred to as Dunbar's number or the rule of 150. And even some large corporations take this to heart. Like if you look at Gore that makes Gore-Tex, if they have a division of their company that gets above 150, they'll split it and put them in two different office buildings, which sounds crazy because mm -hmm. it doesn't sound very efficient. But they just know that like you work much better when you feel like you know the names of everyone in your building. You can know them personally. Those close-knit relationships are a big deal. So I think in its essence, in its simplest answer would be just the business model. It's a model where your manager, we call the director of training, they know everybody's name. They know their kids' names, their spouses' names. The, the clients know their names, their spouses' names. I mean, it's it's just a it feels like a real community and a small family feel, like a neighborhood gym. And that's really important. So I'd say the business model first and foremost. Secondly, um, you work around the injuries really well. So if you look at our customer avatar targets, forty-five to sixty-five, we can certainly go younger for people with means. You know, typically it's just a price threshold issue that pushes it a bit older. But when you look at that that age category, um, if you've done, like, say you played college football, it's like you don't get through life active or not without getting a few chinks in your armor, which would mean some kind of an injury, like your back hurts, you got a funky knee, a foot that bothers you. And it's really hard to go to a class-based concept where it's one size fits all. If you can survive it, great. Otherwise, sorry, you know, there's not a lot of modifications. Um, 
ours allows us to do so. So it makes it stickier because we might have someone who's really fit, who's exercising with us and they go to Colorado and go skiing and they tear their ACL. Now, if you're working out in a class-based concept, you don't go to train because you can run on the treadmill or, you know, jump up and down or whatever they're having you do. If you're at an alloy, you come in and say, hey, I'm going to have to take a break. I tore my ACL. And we're like, well, wait a minute. You have another, your other leg works fine, right? You, you're, you can work your core and your upper body. You're going to let all of your results, you know, fall by the wayside because you just have this one little injury. And of course, they, they're kind of like, oh, you know, you know, they were probably looking forward to taking your break. And we love exercise. Most people don't <laughs> so say, oh, no, I go, OK, you're right. All right. I'll keep coming in. And then you work with their physical therapist, you know, and you catch them coming off a of rehab and you kind of get them back to full function. Right. Over time. That's what you can do. So think about fitness when you keep clients for years and years and years. I mean, our client of the month at our corporate gym last month has been there 28 years. She's in her 80s now. She's been wow. through cancer. Her husband's passed away. She's sold and started two or three businesses. She's, you know, just a baller. But I mean, look at her, what's happened in her life. You know, she's had a frozen shoulder. She had a rotator cuff surgery. I mean, you name it. And through all of that, we were able to keep her fit, right? Like we were staying engaged with her the whole time. That's because it's personal training, right? You can then, you can work with someone if they're injured, if they're going through a really tough time, you can power the workouts down. So it, it keeps us out of that one size fits all. And it really fits our customer avatar. So I'd say like the ability to adjust with people because life happens is really key. And then lastly, you can systemize soft touch customer service points. Like I give you a basic example. I've talked about this one a lot. I think I spoke about it at, uh, at the mastermind with you guys, but we stole this from um, the Ritz Carlton and it's called surprisingly personable. And we just set aside a budget of a couple hundred bucks a month at a facility. And we just randomly gift clients. And so imagine the mechanism, though, when you are in a team meeting and you say, OK, who, do, who needs some love this month? It gets your team consistently thinking about conversations they've had with clients, how, you know what I mean? It makes them really dig in and, and they'll start to listen more and they'll start to care more if they know that they're also being held accountable to like, who are we going to gift this month? They, they have to have some answers. And I know I know me and I'm sure you feel this way. Had I been a personal trainer when I was a personal trainer, if the facility I was working at said, I'm going to give you a budget to spend on your customers just for randomly gifting people, I would have been completely so stoked. I mean, how cool would that be, right? So, but it's a system. The money has to be spent. You account for where it goes and it happens every month. And so you might say, well, you can't do a lot of damage with 200 bucks, but if you can do, it's the gesture, right? Like we might buy spices for someone's vegetables because they don't like eating vegetables and you're trying to push them to do that. Use that as a basic, basic example. There's a lot of these examples, but I think things like that can be systemized. And not only does it happen if it's systemized, it gets your team thinking about the things outside of just the, the programming itself, right? So I think business model, the fact that you can modify per the business model, you can modify for injuries, which is really relevant for our customer avatar, and the fact that you can, with only 130, 150 people, you can really systemize some soft touch customer service things. Yeah, no, that's amazing. It, it's funny. Um, I have this idea, you know, I, I really tried to simplify everything. And I, I learned a lot of that, of that from you, too, because I think that when you explain things, you, you keep it really simple and you make things easy to understand. And I have this view of business of it really comes down to getting clients and keeping clients. Like that's really like if you just narrow it down of like what someone needs to do and we have this term we invented called fake work um, and basically fake work is when you do anything except 
do things that either get clients or keep clients like watering the plants and doing all this stuff. Right. And um, so I feel like if gym owners at home or franchisees, like if they just spent the majority of the time focusing on the tasks that either get clients, right. Or keep clients, uh, they're going to be in, they're going to be in a good shape. So you yeah, just gave us that's a great, great, that's a great way to put it because, you know, I, I'll even field emails from our franchisees currently. And, you know, uh, like we have a, good, a really good franchisee who recently pivoted to a different director in his location. He's pretty remote to his location. And it's one of our top performers. He really is. He's a great guy. And he can run a business remote, but he's a, he's an engineer by trade. So he's very um, analytical. If he's listening to this, he'll know exactly who I'm talking about. I love the guy. He's awesome. But, um, you know, it was, he noticed his uh, retention, you know, went down. So his attrition upticked, right, a bit when his current director left and he um, promoted the next man up. Next guy's great. It's just, you know, you just have to learn the thing, right? It just takes a minute. But I, I can I can see in the emails I get, and I fall prey to this too. It's like you're looking for everything. Like if the leads changed, is the marketing different? It's like, you know what I mean? It's like there's all, there's got to be yeah. all these reasons. And of course, it's easy for me because I'm not in the business, right? So from crop duster height, I'm like, no, your person changed. Just coach that person. It's like, that's the only variable that's changed, right? So to your point, it's like, there's a lot of, I think, natural inclination to problem solve as an entrepreneur. And it's really fun to run down all of these different rabbit holes, but it's like, okay, what are the basics on getting and keeping members or customers, clients, right? If you just focus on those things at the highest level, it's, it's really simple. It's always Occam's razor. It's like, okay, here's one thing that's changed that's affecting, you know, culture or whatever. I mean, it's not that difficult. I, have, I do have a tendency to oversimplify at times. But I think that's probably good because, you know, most people are not that way. So at least it pushes them in that direction. Yeah. Um, but to your point, I love it. You're right. Any Anything time spent that's not acquiring new customers or keeping the ones you have is, is really time wasted, right? And sometimes it can be hard to identify what those main levers are that you need to pull. I mean, in a franchise, that's what we're here to do. But we still see the entrepreneurial brain is like it likes to run off yeah. and go on these wild goose chases it's like no it's not that <laughs> it's this right it's right in front of us yes but it's hard yep. it's hard at times i think i'm fault victim to it sometimes as well and i'm sure you do too for sure yeah definitely um so we we went over keeping clients let's talk getting clients um you've got a lot of experience in marketing i always love i love your grassroots stories too because you tell you know the stories of you know the the joint ventures and things like that you're not just a digital marketing you know, guy, but, um, talk about if we could just give people, you know, and obviously I talk about this stuff all the time. So hopefully the people listening to this will listen to me. They know some of this of what Rick's probably about to say, but from an alloy perspective, what are you doing? I know you have a pre-sale and do everything that, that launch everything. What, do, what are you doing to make that successful? Um, from that end? Yeah. in the spirit of simplifying what you'd mentioned, it's really, there's really two things that you're doing, right? You have your digital marketing, which can be you know, any of your Google platforms, which is your website, your Google My Business, YouTube, you've got Meta, which is obviously Facebook and Instagram, um, you know, you can do next door. I mean, think about digital as, as, you know, you're, it's an outreach, right? And you're going to get direct response. So people are going to throw their hand up and say, hey, I'm interested. And then you're going to, you know, start your processes. And we have a lot of automation and a lot of just effort goes into following up with those leads getting them into the gym, convincing them that you're the right machine or you're the right solution to their problem. Like, you're on fire. I've got water. Let's go. Right. That's sort of the idea. 
That's that's half of it should be. The other half is community based organic marketing, especially for a personal training brand. And so really, it's really two things is how we look at it. Okay, you got digital on one side. And if that's going well, and, you know, it does quite often working with you guys, you know, you can have a tendency to just stay in your office and play catch. But what you're what you're losing the opportunity to learn in that case is the skill to go out into your community and run relevant, productive cross promotions with like businesses, sponsor local races. I mean, you lose the ability to, to learn how to talk to people in the community at the local chamber, whatever those things are. So it's any and all things, it's all hands on deck. And I would say that during a pre-sale, digital is very important because you have a finite amount of time, you know, to, to, to that you're not doing anything but selling. So our digital spend is typically much higher during a pre-sale and it's really relevant. But I will say as a personal training brand that keeps a relatively small number of customers with a relatively low churn rate, right? Your community-based marketing is you'll be planting seeds now. You will get some direct response based on the scarcity of having a limited number during a pre-sale. But eventually, those are the things that pay off down the road where you're known in the community. We often say, you know, we can put you, I can put the right message in front of the right person, the right customer, avatar. But I don't know when. And you know what I mean by that. It's like, I don't know when someone's ready to change their life. And so the community-based marketing allows you to just be the top of mind solution when people are ready, when they get back from that vacation, they see that picture or they, their back is sore or they can't keep up on a hike with their kids or, you know, grandkids or whatever that is. And they're just like, you know what? I'm, I'm sick of this. Like I'm tired of myself. And they look around and they're like, where's that flyer that I got from that personal training place? Or I'm going to stop by that place next to Publix grocery store, you know, which is a brand here in the South, you know, what, those type of things. Right. And so I think the community-based marketing, it does pay off in the short term during a pre-sale, but it also is the best type of marketing for long-term strategy because you get that slow trickle of new customers each month just by brand awareness. So that's it. It's really a two-pronged approach. And then each one, obviously we could deep dive each channel, right? And there's strategies and techniques for each one, but that's it. And I think the community-based marketing has a four-letter word attached to it, which is just work, right? Um, whereas you can get used to just sitting in your office and playing catch, like I'd mentioned before, that's probably not what you want to do. Um, as a matter of fact, Vince, we have um, employed a sales team here at corporate that our franchisees can, um, you know, they can take advantage of where we will take their, their phone telephone leads and their digital leads during their pre-sale. We do that for two reasons. One, it's going to give their team the bandwidth to go out into the community and do the thing, right? I think that's important because you just need time. And second, it also forces them to go out and build those skills on how to run the community outreach programs that we have. And that will pay dividends big time, you know, once the club is open and now you have two objectives. One is, yes, continue to sell, but you're also now servicing revenue. So you do inherently lose a little bit of bandwidth. So it's like, okay. But now you've got this skill that you can always go back to, right? And if you don't, and you're just playing catch with digital leads, you never you never get the opportunity to do that. So that's what we literally have hired a sales team for that reason, um, just to just to help franchisees during pre-sale. So anyway, that's it at a high level. Two different channels. One's community-based, guerrilla marketing, organic, whatever you want to call it. The other one's straight digital, and there's a couple different options for that as well. But um, that's it in a nutshell. Again, I oversimplify it, but <laughs> I think that's it. I don't know if you see it any differently. Oh, yeah. No, no, you're right on. It's funny. I want to extract something that you said and kind of highlight it to the audience. You mentioned 
uh, four words is I'm sick of this. And I think that business owners do not spend enough time thinking about what's going on in the lives of the clients. And every client they've ever had has had most of them, maybe not all of them, most of them have had that type of moment is I'm sick of this. And we try to get our guys constantly of just thinking about it's empathy, right? It's understanding what's going on in their lives. And you mentioned about the community stuff and I'm, here's the thing. I own a marketing agency and I still tell people at nauseum to go out into the community. And I don't know if it's something that I just did when, how I got my business launched. I didn't run a Facebook ad till 2016. Right. And, and before that it was like newspapers and, you know, grassroots and all that stuff. So I'm a, I'm a huge, and I love that you're doing this with the franchise. Cause I think a lot of franchises are not, I think they're saying like, Oh, you, you just run this ad and everything's going to work out. And I think I, I love that you're doing that and teaching your franchisees, the community based um, parts of it. And I had, I had an interesting thing happen the other day. Um, I've been obsessed with this, this whole concept of where'd your last 20 clients come from? And it's basically you put all your last put your last twenty clients in a, in a spreadsheet, and you identify exactly where they came from. Meaning, you go to them and you ask them in a personal conversation, "Well, oh, no, where where did you come from?" Facebook ad. No, actually, where did you hear from us originally? Like, what was the first thing you heard? And I did this recently at my last mastermind where I had the mastermind, and I did this with me. I was like, "Where did you first hear me?" Not one of them were the same. It was all different from all different walks of seminar here, Facebook ad here, you know, referral here. And I think that shines the light on your strategy, you know, to do the product approach of the digital and the community because they're going to come when they're ready and they're going to need to be hit from different ways. So, you know, I love it. I think you guys are doing you know, a hell of a job on the marketing side. So I appreciate that. Yeah. We have work. training this week and I laughed when I came in because there is a, we set up a booth inside of our gym and inside of our training center. And we practice like we'll, we'll literally like walk it. Like I'm walking by the booth as if I'm someone who's um, going into a grocery store. How are you going to breach the conversation with this person? We even role play it at that level. Right. Cause it's, a lot of yeah. people haven't done it. I mean, if you've, if you've only, if you've only sold to people that have already come in and been really interested, it's a little bit different to go out and just create community awareness, community awareness. And so it's a skill, but it's such a valuable skill. And I will say to anyone listening, even if you're working for or with an organization where you're not the owner or the entrepreneur, it's a super valuable skill. Think about learning this skill essentially on someone's dime. Even if you don't stay at that organization for the next 10 years, if you learn how to sell in all of these different settings, you have just developed a skill that can feed you for the rest of your life. So think about it that way. You know, the same framework applies to selling personal training or automobiles or software. I mean, it's, it's basically the same thing. So, you know, embrace the fact that you might not be that great at it now. Um, really learn the skills by whether it's Vince teaching you or if you're working at an alloy or whatever, it's like, that's an opportunity to upskill yourself. And again, it's a skill that you will never lose. It could diminish, but if you keep practicing, and you can learn to sell. It is a super valuable skill for the rest of your life. I listened to your podcast that you had. You had Jason DeRose on your podcast from Gym Subs, who actually we just yeah. started with. And by the way, I, oh, cool. I have I have it here. 
Uh, the cinnamon roll protein is the best tasting protein oh, I've dude. ever had. It's amazing. Like, is is that best. what you use? Do you do you like yeah, that flavor? I, I use them all. Yeah, I have all kinds oh my of God. Super recipes, but it's so good. Oh my god, amazing! Um, but one of the things you know, you were talking to Jason. One of the things he said on your podcast was, "How do you sell supplements? You do a tasting. <laughs> like you just put the thing out there and you get people to try it, and it's just it's like it's so the same simple. stuff we're talking about with the community stuff." Yep, so okay, it is. All right, I, I, I'm, I'm being cognizant of time because I want to make sure you know we finish on time, and I could, I feel like I could talk to you about this stuff for a day. But um, let me switch gears into kind of um, personal success. You're one of the more successful people I know personally. I look at what you're doing. I look at what you've done, um, and you have your shit together, right? Um, talk to us. Talk to us about the the personal success principles that you deem most important. I'll give you a quick caveat to kind of pose the question a little more. I worked on the most important project of my life this year, and I finished it and presented it to my kids on Christmas. And I wrote a 365-page book. That was all the things that I wanted them to know about success, personal achievement, and being a great human being and being successful in life. And I gave it to them, uh, one page each chapter, and you know, subject line of what it was. Uh, call it perseverance. Call it discipline. Um, that was basically my personal philosophy on success. You that. obviously have you obviously have your own share a couple of us a couple things with us that are drivers for your personal success in life yeah man that's a great loaded question but i love it um i think first and foremost facts over feelings yeah is something that i would say right where your ability to regulate your emotions and not react to those emotions personally and professionally is going to dictate a lot of your ability to succeed whether it's you know you've heard like oh courage is not the absence of fear it's the ability to overcome fear still do the thing it's like well that's true right so hmm. fear would be an emotion you know um gosh there's so many emotions imposter syndrome all the things that you get when you're growing and uncomfortable it's like realizing that those are normal and you might feel a certain way but just because you have the feeling doesn't mean that you need to to act on that feeling, right? And I think a lot of um, lip service gets gets credited for entrepreneurship. Trust your gut. Go with the way you feel. I'm like, I don't really love that advice. I mean, if you're again, if you're Warren Buffett and you're talking about following your feelings, he's not really following feelings. He's following like 90 years of data collection. <laughs> yeah. His gut feeling <laughs> is not really like a feeling. It's more of like. He's examining books. all, yeah, yeah, examining <laughs> all of his successes, failures, his views on the market. I mean, he's making rational decisions based on data points that sure. might feel like a gut, but they're not, right? So if you're like 24, like, no, don't trust your gut. That's a terrible idea. So I would say um, that first and foremost, your ability to regulate your emotions, anger, fear, stress, whatever those things are, and then make rational decisions based on data is going to be key. That, and I think you really have to have the ability to not really care what other people think about you. You know, often when we have discovery days, which is sort of the last step in the in the process of someone being awarded an alloy, 
always wrap up the day with the, the story about Bronnie Ware, which I know you're aware of. She was the Australian hospice nurse. And she wrote a book called Five Regrets of the Dying. And so she spent a lot of time with people in their last weeks, months, months, weeks, maybe days of their lives, hours, maybe. And she would ask what their greatest regrets were. And then she compiled the info and wrote a short book, which is really interesting. You're going to get pretty, pretty profound answers from someone who's at the end of their life. And I think the number two regret wasn't really relevant to this day and age. I mean, she was doing this at a time when you work for a large company, you work for GE, and then you retired and got your gold watch and your pension. That's not happening anymore anyway. So that number two biggest regret was like, I wish I hadn't worked so hard because I think they looked at that and thought, what was that all about? I didn't do a thing, right? Worked in middle-level management my entire life. Some people still have that when they work for big corporate. We hear that story a lot for people that are looking to break out and become entrepreneurs. But I think the the number one regret and the one that's most profound was I wish I'd had the courage to live life on my terms instead of the life that other people wished of me. And so I think it's really easy to just fall into these norms and paradigms. And you're really just living a life that that feels normal, but it's really not the life that you want to live. It's the life that everyone expects you to live. And that keeps you from making decisions and you know, strategies, building strategies that will get you to a place that you want to be. And it's, sometimes it's hard for people to even know what they want to be if they're living in that state. You know, you're like, well, you've, you've done this. You coach a lot of entrepreneurs. It's like, what do you want out of your life? What do you want the day in the life of it to look like? People don't even know. So it's really hard. I'm not going to say that that's easy, but I think the, the best quote that I heard about this was you would care a lot less about what people think of you if you realized how little they did, which simply means like no one really cares. They only care what you think about them. Right. And they have a bunch of stuff going on in their lives as well. So your worry about what your aunt or your parents or your siblings or your friends are going to think if you venture into entrepreneurship or if you're you, you know, you go public with this ridiculous, you know, big, hairy, audacious goal, this BHAG, you know, you're worried about the, you know, what that might mean. It's like, don't, nobody really cares. And I don't mean that in an unfeeling way. I just mean they're too busy worried about what you think about them. So, like, Dress how you want, drive what you want, right? Do what you want in your business, as long as you don't hurt people. And I think that's that's a given. Um, I think those would be the two biggest things is being able to stand out there, proclaim who you are and what you want out of life, and then just chase it. And then be able to do that at the same time, regulating your emotions, staying, staying stoic enough so that you can weather the hard times, kind of like the Stockdale paradox. Like you might be going through it right now and you might be able to say, this sucks, right? had to take three steps backwards to open my own business. It's terrible right now, or I'm expanding to two locations. I'm actually making less money than I used to because I'm underwater now financially, blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, you can, you can embrace the fact that things are really difficult right now, but you can also have ultimate optimism that things are going to work out your way. And you know, James Stockdale, again, the highest ranking prisoner in the Hanoi Hilton during the Vietnam war, he was getting the most punishment, scrutiny, torture. And he did really well. And he said, listen, I knew, I had no aspirations or, or expectations of when I would get out. I knew it was going to be hell on earth until I did. But ultimately, I knew that when I did get out of here, I did think I was going to make it eventually. And I knew it would be a profound thing that had happened in my life and it would turn into something amazing and great. And then it did for him, right? So I think being able to hold those two truths at the same time, like, hey, man, this yeah. sucks right now and I'm emotional about it, doesn't mean that my whole life is collapsing and that's not the reality of where I'm going to be, you know, five, six, eight months from now. So it's, it's a tough skill to build. It's like a muscle though. You can build it just like working out. Yeah. The, all the optimists died, right? They did. Everyone is <laughs> like, we've got to be out of here by Christmas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Christmas I love that comes story. and goes, they're not out and they're so disappointed. It literally breaks them. Right. I tell you the pandemic was 
horrible, <clears throat> but at the same time, great for extracting those kinds of stories. We had, I had a thing that I put together for the mastermind, uh, almost like a guiding principles to get through the pandemic. And one of them was the Stockdale paradox. Um, the other one was Jocko like discipline. Um, so taking Jocko Willink and like, we have to be ultra, ultra, ultra disciplined at this period in the pandemic. And then the last one was Disney like creativity because you got to be creative. You got to be able to move. You got to be able to make changes and be fast and, and do that. And that was kind of our mantra throughout the whole pandemic. And it was a lot of those stories served really well. I want to go back to the facts over feelings. I love this one. Um, I had all my kids memorize the definition of reality and reality is not the way you wish things are the way reality is that the way things actually are. And I think that that is, I think that so many people lose touch with reality. And I think it's one of the reasons that keeps them um, not as successful as they could be. And recently my son, he's doing jujitsu. And I know you, uh, you told me that you're a purple belt at one, at one point in time. And my son's been doing it for, he's, he's eight now, but he's, uh, he's been doing it for three years and he's competing and he's getting into it and he's doing all the things. And the other day he got choked out and he came back. It was a practice round and he came back and he, you could tell he was really pissed off and he went after the kid after he got choked out and, um, the sense that they saw him and he, he grabbed him and he said, he looked him in the eye and he was like, you have to control your feelings. And I didn't know he said that to him. I just saw him say something and he came, he's all upset. He came after me. I was like, well, what did he say to you? And he like said in a Brazilian accent, he like imitated him. He's like, you have to control your feelings. It was, it was pretty funny. Uh, the, way, the way he like an eight-year-old uh, repeated that to me, but I'm seeing this in my young kids every day to teach them about reality, to teach them about emotions. And it doesn't change whether you're a kid growing up or you're running a business. Um, so I thought that was awesome. My second one for you, I love the don't care what others think. Have you ever heard the, um, the Howard Stern clip, your feedback is irrelevant? <laughs> no, but it sounds perfect. Oh, my God. So, Rick, you, if you ever teach – if you ever teach, uh, if, if if it's in a seminar, don't care what others think, you got to pull this clip, Google Howard Stern listener feedback or something like that. And it's a whole clip of uh, some guy calls up the show and he's like, Howard, I want to give you some feedback. And, and Stern's like, not necessary. And he's whole, he goes on this rampage of about how your feedback is irrelevant. I don't care what you think. I do what I want to do. And it's like every time I feel like I'm getting in my head about caring what others think, I go back and I listen to that clip. It's just uh, amazing. So thank you for those. I, I appreciate that. They mean a lot to me. And if you're if you haven't, if you're watching this on video, you can see that I'm taking notes the entire time Rick's talking. I'm doing that for my own personal gain. Every time Rick speaks, and he kind of makes fun of me last time I was at the summer, he's like, you've heard all this before. Why are you taking notes again? But I always <laughs> take notes. Um, well, let's can, can we talk alloy? Um, yeah, man. Let's, let's talk alloy. Uh, what, what are you types of people are you looking for to be an alloy franchisee and then kind of point us in that? direction sure uh, most you know the most of our franchisees events are, are buying between three and six territories mm -hmm. 
Um, they are on the investor level. And when I say that, I mean, they're not fitness people per se. They're looking at Alloy as an investment vehicle and they may own, they might be part of a real estate syndicate or self-storage or, you know, they're, they're successful people, right? Because there is a financial threshold that you have to meet to be able to invest in Alloy. And we do that for the protection of the investor, of course, and, and us. So we're looking for a certain financial threshold. Outside of that, the intangibles, the things that we're looking for that are more soft touch is like, I'm looking for some leadership background. Like, can you attract, hire, and lead the right people? Because if you're going to be on the investment level and you're not going to service revenue, meaning you're not working in your business, you have to be able to find fitness people, right? And we have a very relevant offer. We can pay better than market rate. We can, we have a full benefits package that goes all the things we put together to help them. And we've got vendors that can help them locate people. We've got a screening test for personality to say, like, yeah, are they even hardwired to do the job? And then obviously we run EOS and we teach it to our franchisees. So we've got interview questions around our core values, um, you know, in the, in the way that EOS would teach you to do that. So other than hiring them ourselves, there's not much we can do, but you just have to be the type of person that can sit down with someone and say, Hey, I want to go change the lives in this local community. You know, who's with me. And we often say, I'll heard it on a podcast a long time ago. I use it all the time, which is, are you the person you're looking for is looking for. And what I mean by that is when I'm interviewing a potential, because it's it's an awarding of a franchise. We're not selling to someone, right? We're we're partnering, and it's I take it seriously. So, if I'm partnering with an alloy franchisee, a franchise partner, can I envision them sitting down with what I know makes the ideal face of an alloy location? Outgoing, looks the part, energetic, ready to change lives. Are they the person that that person's looking for, right? And so that's what I'm looking for. It's got to be leadership. Again, they have to have emotional regulation, right? They have to be. They have to have a little bit of grit, meaning they can work hard. And again, you know, this this term in franchising gets thrown a lot, around a lot called uh, semi absentee ownership, which means I hate that word. Because I just hate absentee. And what does semi mean? It's kind of like semi private training. Like yeah, half, like you're <laughs> half in your business. It's like it's your business. If you run it right. You know, we've got franchisees who spend a couple hours a week on it, tops, right? And they do amazing, but they've got really good hires and they know which levers to pull. They're looking at the right metrics, which we teach them. We have others that um, have to work a little bit more, right? Because maybe they have some staff turnover or whatever. And all I want you to do is to, to say that you're willing to do whatever it takes. So if you're the person you're looking for, it's looking for. So you've got some leadership skills. You've got the financial thresholds. You can regulate your emotions and you've got some grit. So you'll work hard if needed then you'll do it. Absolutely fine. I mean, the product stands on its own. It's well-received in markets. The price is a good value proposition to the right customer avatar, which is where we put them and all the things that go into you know creating a good franchise location. So that's about it. So if you're that person um, and you want to talk franchising, you know, it's just alloyfranchise.com is the franchise site. And there's a million places on the site where you can fill out a, a form and it'll ask you your finance, a little bit about your finances and why you want an alloy. And and we go from there. We have an outside sales team that does a really good job that we hired and they will get in touch with you. And it's a you know six step, pretty lengthy process to get you to, to meet with us long term. And we through that process, we're, you're vetting us as an opportunity and we're vetting you as a franchise candidate as well. That's why it's a true partnership. So, yeah, I mean, I hope that sums it up. I know it's pretty wordy, but like, look, if you have the money, check. Are you the right? Are you wired the right way? Check, right? Will you work hard if needed? Check, um, and then yeah, just alloyfranchise.com. Fill out the form, and we'll go from there. Awesome, thank you. And that brings us 
exactly to one hour as I promised. Uh, Perfect. So, You're the Rick, man. Rick, I appreciate you. Uh, I'm honored that I'll be speaking at your event uh, yeah. coming up. I'm grateful that you came and spoke at mine in the last uh, – our last mastermind meeting in San Antonio, you came in just for that. And I knew you had a bunch of other things going on and you got on the plane and you gave, made the flight, you did the talk, you killed it. And then you left and it was outstanding. So I, I appreciate all you do for us and so grateful for you and our relationship. And uh, you're doing great work, man. I'm uh, really, it's really awesome to see the journey you're on. Very, uh, very awesome. Good job. Likewise, my friend, it was an honor to be on. And uh, yeah, we can't wait to have you out and uh, well, it's not till September, but can't wait for you to share, you know, some of the the juice that you have around small group and the community marketing. And I don't know, man, I love your mastermind. Great group of folks. Just keep doing you. I love it. Keep helping the industry, man. Thanks, brother. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this content valuable, check us out at alloyfranchise.com for more information on the alloy systems. Also, leave us a five-star review so we can spread the good word and help more people.